Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, we're back again. We're back for episode 79, and I hope we got a good one here. Indeed we are. <laughs> well, the Mike and Dave Spectacular uh, last episode actually went over pretty well. So. Well, good. We just never know when we don't have a guest how good a job we're actually doing. But <laughs> <laughs> Some folks let us know. Yes, they did. Well, Dave, what is up in your model sphere? Well, I am happy to report that the dark time... This year has not been quite as dark. I've gone on endlessly about the the time between Thanksgiving and the New Year and how little I get done. Um, it's not been it's not been as bad. We'll catch up on that at the bench top. But uh, I'm making progress. I'm, I've I've got an overall good feeling about my modeling. I see I'm in a good place. I'm not ecstatically overjoyed, 100% sunshine, but I'm in a place where I'm feeling decent about what I'm doing and where I am right now. So the only other thing is that uh, model companies seem to be absolutely out to break, out to absolutely break my wallet. They are announcing stuff left and right. Well, it's a faves and yawns episode, so I, I hope, know. You, hope you got a few because I sure do. It's gonna be it's gonna be a long one. We're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to pull some time somewhere else to make up make up for it. Well, that's my <laughs> point exactly. This I don't remember this time of year being as announcement heavy as as it seems to be right now. And you know, again, golden time in modeling. I think it's just it, we're we're. We are as lucky as we could be. The simulation is uh, doing everything it can to please us. <laughs> How about you? What's your model sphere looking like? Well, we talked uh, last episode about, I guess the question was, you know, do I want my computer next to my workbench? And what was the, I can't remember exactly what, what the context was. It was, it was about uh, oh, getting, time. getting time, management. time, time management, getting faster. Yeah. So yes. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that more in the listener mail, but uh, I, I actually did that. So my workshop, and I posted a picture on the dojo. I, I've it's not entirely different, but I've rearranged it. I, I'm kind of liking it, but not necessarily for the reasons that uh, I thought moving it might uh, might make me like it. But uh, just the general arrangement is better. But uh, in that process, I was moving. My display cabinet. Oh, this hurts. <laughs> Just, I want to cry. Well, it's it's interesting. It's it's not cry bad. I mean, I'll I'll fix it, but uh, it almost is. Uh, folks may remember way back. I, I've I've told this story numerous times. I probably I think I told it on uh, Scale Model Podcast uh, when I was the guest the first time I was ever on any kind of podcast, ours or otherwise. Uh, that. Uh, Back in 2002 at, at Amps, I'd, I'd built that SU-76 based off part of the Allen 
Hobby's very, kit. Very and, little of the Allen Hobby's kit. And a, and a whole lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, that model won a Golden Advanced. It won Best Russian. And it almost won Best of Show. Sure. Right. It was very close by yep. all folks coming around after the show who judged and, and telling us. Yep. Uh, the, the elevator version of this story is the model that won was one that was using at that time, all these avant-garde chipping and weathering techniques. And it was such a paradigm shift. It basically bummed me out and I didn't build models much at all for a long time. So during my, my basement clean out, I talked about last time the, the old furnace room, I, I found some of the old plaques that I had and I found that best Russian 2002 amps. And so I put it back in the display case behind the model leaned up against the back of the stinking Ugh. display case. Yeah. Well, when I was sliding the display case across the floor, it, it one of the bottom edges caught, I guess, the gap in the linoleum tiles down here. It's old school yeah. foot square linoleum tiles on the floor. And it just bumped it enough to knock that plaque over, and it fell right on top of the SU-76 and Ugh. did some pretty good damage to it. Mm. So. Okay. I'm going to need a minute. And, and, and what, on one hand, it's ironic that the model was outdone by the, the prize that it won. <laughs> it, uh, on the other hand, it's, it's kind of metaphoric as to what actually happened after that show. Yeah. Yeah, really. So, you, 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 could, you, you could really read a lot into that. So in, in all the introspection, you know, I, I welled up to get pissed. And I was like, you know what? I'm not. I'm, I'm just going to fix this, touch it up. And uh, I know what I did, and we just got to go forward. So <laughs> that's what happened in my model sphere. I broke something, uh, probably broke the best model I've ever built to date. <laughs> well, you know what? We have to mark that down for a future episode. We have to talk about what you do with finished kits. And, you know, do you display them? Do you give them away? How much do you care about them when they're done? That'd be a an interesting topic for a future episode. Especially somebody who accumulates them faster than we do. Yeah, well, that's true. Well, <laughs> we don't have a storage problem. Let's say that. That's true. <laughs> so, uh, Mike, I, I heard some ice clinking. I'm assuming that that means there is a modeling fluid. Ah, uh, yeah, you know, I was enjoying that uh, Russell's Reserve 10 year. So I've picked up a bottle of uh, um, Bullet 10 year. Mm-hmm. For comparison, and you know, the, the bullet ten year is good. We'll talk a little bit more about it uh, at the end, but uh, I'm kind of enjoying that. Well, good. Well, and I'm 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 steering a slightly different course. Um, uh, in honor of our friend and and se- fellow Septemberist John Vitkus, who whenever we have one of our video get-togethers, uh, is always drinking a fine wine tonight. Uh, instead of a bourbon or a beer, I have a uh, Coppola 2019 Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, 14.5% alcohol by volume. And I don't normally drink wines. Uh, when I do drink wines, it's almost exclusively red wines. I think the only other wine I've had as a modeling fluid in all 79 episodes might have been the uh, 19 crimes Snoop Dogg Cali Red. So, <laughs> so this will be this will be an interesting comparison when we get to the end. But John, 
I'm joining you in having a fine glass of wine. Well, we need to join all these folks who have uh, sent Lister Mail in the last two weeks. All right. Let's get to it. Oh, yeah. We got to because we got a healthy amount. Good. A lot of repeats, but, you know, we don't care. Yep. We got a lot of folks writing in and, and interacting with us. And one of those repeats would be Mr. David Waples. Mm-hmm. Now, he's got a Colorado area code. I, I don't know if that's really where he's from or not. Yeah, these days, it used to be you could tell. These know, days, with people keeping their cell phone numbers and moving around the country, you never know. Anyway, he said he enjoyed episode 77 while putting up his outdoor Christmas lights and decorations. <laughs> well, 77 was Dr. Strangebrush and, and our uh, Clear Parts one. Yeah. Clear Parts episode. And uh, he's got a tip. Which is? Uh, glass files. Not not files for filing glass, but rather files made of glass. Right. I have seen these. Now, he thinks they're etched somehow, and they probably are. Yeah. Or or cut, maybe, as well. But uh, anyway, he says Infinity sells some. Yeah. But uh, he got some, some that were geared toward the fingernail industry. Yeah. Less expensive. He got... Uh, you got eight of these. I don't. I don't know if they're if it's a set or if it's eight duplicates. But for ten bucks off Amazon, so yep. You can also go into like Joanne Beauty Supply, and they have glass files. Great for filing off the nubs that we were talking about. And uh, best part is they leave a polished finish. Huh. I had never thought of that part of it. Hmm. Me either. I, well, I never knew the thing existed. Oh yeah, I, I've I've seen them and they're they've been around and you know that's always one thing that's interested me that uh, we've we've mentioned when talking with Evan once or twice when you watch Evan's videos, you know when I cut something off the sprue and there's a nub that I need to sand down, I use a sanding stick, whereas Evan uses a metal file, and I've just uh, you know that's just such a different approach and the glass file. Probably somewhere in between the two. Well, but he'll buy 8,000 sets of uh, 3D printed tracks and won't buy any new tools. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's still better than Night Shift, <laughs> who, who up until recently was cutting stuff off the sprue with nail scissors. That just hurt me every time I watched it. <laughs> uh, up next, Ray LeGrant from Ware, Massachusetts. I guess he just wants our take on, on, on some... Uh, Cyber etiquette. Okay. I mean, you know, we've all got these, all the podcasts have these groups and et cetera now. And yep. we're all in forums and Facebook groups. Uh, he was told it's very, very impolite to post a photo of your own model, if, especially if you built the same kit, uh, in the comment section of somebody else's post. <sighs> I And it's like, he's, it's like saying, yeah, I did it too, and mine's better. You know, I have I have actually encountered this complaint once or twice, and I'll be honest with you, I don't unless somebody says something when they post the photo of their build of the kit, you know, something that's snarky or offensive or that, just posting a photo of you having built the same kit, I don't see how that's offensive. I mean, this isn't something we're getting social credit scores for. It just... <laughs> well, some people think we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay, sadly, yeah. Um, in, in general, I always view that as, or at least I've always, when, when it's happened in something I've posted, I've always viewed that positively as, hey, 
I built this too. And, you know, there's usually a comment like, yeah, I found this part tough too, or, you know, something relating back to what the original post or poster said accompanying their model. You know, I, I've heard there are people who, who don't think that that's a polite thing to do. I don't quite understand why, and I don't think there's a problem doing it as long as, like I said, any accompanying text with the photo is is not a ha ha ha, I did it better than you, or, you know, I didn't have any of the problems you had or whatever. But, you know, just saying, yeah, you know, great build. I did the, uh, you know, I built that same kit. I really enjoyed it and put a picture up. I don't see how that's really offensive. Yeah, I guess it, it it's into it's gets down to the interpretation of the original poster. Yes, yeah, and and their intent of posting their model within yes. their own brain. I I don't know. You can't be and, clairvoyant, but well, he he does, he does qualify this a little bit more. Uh, he says he's seen it done a lot, where uh, a builder will post a single photo and then somebody will photo bomb their own in the comment section. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> that. Pro, that I okay. That I will agree with. If somebody posts, you know, nine or 10 pictures of a build they just completed, posting a single photo along with a helpful or positive comment, yeah. Somebody posts one photo of a build they just completed and you post 25 in the comments, that's <laughs> that's just overboard, just not from an offensive standpoint, it's just overboard. You know, you if you're tagging into somebody else's post, commenting on it, a single photo is sufficient. This is their spotlight, and you're just commenting on it. Yep. Interesting question. Oh, let's keep going, man. You got it. This one's interesting because we can have a little bit of follow-on with, I think, a different listener. But Chris DeYoung's back, mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> he said he had a small history with three Floyds. 15 years ago or so, he ordered a shirt from their online shop and never received it after, even after multiple emails and calls unanswered. Oh, no. Uh, he vowed to boycott their beer, but broke down the last time he was in Chicago because he saw their barbarian haze and just had to pick up a six pack. <laughs> oh, I don't blame him. Uh, the box wins you over. <laughs> and Chris is in Jacksonville, Florida. Now, he's not the person who, you, you've got something. Maybe we'll save it till, uh, no, he he is not the person that that uh, DM'd me uh, on okay. Facebook. We'll get to yours in a minute. Yes, we will. Moving along, Dave. Okay. Uh, Mark Dramus out on the West Coast with uh, Jim and all those guys. Doctor Strangebrush comments. Okay. Says he's pretty sure his doctorate's in chemistry or something like that, but uh, might actually be marketing. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny because Dr. Strangebrush doesn't think he does a very good job of marketing. And and Jim and I and other people are always giving him suggestions, uh, remarketing. His degree is some sort of biology, chemical engineer, something in that field. And I can't or it's a it's a hard science and I don't know right. what it is. I he's told me once, but that was probably in a hotel room in Vegas or Omaha. Uh, well, no, it wasn't in Omaha because he didn't make it, but pro- probably in a hotel room in Vegas or or sitting in a microbrewery somewhere. And, <laughs> yeah, that that particular information has has been lost. I'll ask him. Well, Mark's one of several who come back after those episodes and talk about uh, 
the money they've spent and the, the, <laughs> the kind service and private messages, personal messages they've gotten in their boxes. Yeah. Uh, doing business with uh, Mr. Miller. So we're glad to hear it. Yes. And he is a great guy. Again, I, I can't sing his praises high enough. Here's a good one. Ken Cox from Las Vegas, Nevada. Okay. He's wondering if we have any insight into what goes into what models go in and out of production. Uh, and he's says he's been listening with envy about your Kate getting crossed, crossing the finish line because uh, he's been looking at the N1 and N2 Kates for a while now. Yeah. And uh, he says the current eBay prices are kind of ugly. Yeah. And, you know, Hobby Link Japan has one for 12 bucks, but, you know, by the time you pay the 45 shipping to get it, uh, yep. you're right there at the eBay price. So go to a contest. I picked up one in Cincinnati for $10. So you don't have to pay. eBay does tend to be pricey. Well, you get the speculators uh, on there who exactly. got their, they got their finger on the pulse of what's in the current lineup. And, uh, right. And they, uh, they're scalping, essentially. Yes, essentially. If I knew what the I, – I have a big interest in the business side of the hobby, the back end of the hobby, and, you know, how, it, how it's decided what kit is produced. These companies that are apparently doing CADs and then selling to multiple companies their CAD renders of a particular uh, vehicle, like a Stug or a Panther or whatever – uh, just all of that interests me greatly. I would, I would love to know what the decision making is regarding when a company brings an old kit back into the lineup for further production. I, I've frankly, I've wondered if those companies monitor eBay and look at the prices, and when the price gets high enough, they they, they re. <laughs> re-release the kit on another run and maybe bump the price one or two dollars and they're still making out like bandits i i don't know and and man there are some oh the one that was for the longest time the great mystery was the hasagawa sbd which would come into release once every 15 years for five seconds and boy, you better grab one when they were released. It was the only SBD worth building on the market. Now Flyhawk has come out and done their beautiful kit. So so the the Hasegawa SBD mystery is not as big and as interesting as it was. But man, that was a kit where it just seemed like Hasegawa had little or no interest in having it in their lineup on any sort of regular basis. Maybe they're holding a grudge from Midway. I don't know. But that 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 is the premium example of a kit that there was demand for well beyond what was being when when Hasegawa would bring it back into their lineup. So no, I don't have any insight. I wish I did. Uh, if there's somebody out there in the industry who does have insight, I'd, I'd love to hear what information you have because, yeah, some of those are a mystery to me too. Well, and, you know, just generally, this is just injection molding in gen- general. They they only have so much capacity right? that their business model allow them to have, whether they do their molding in-house or if it's at a, at a mold shop. 
They only have yeah. so much capacity they can pay for. Uh, they're always trying to have new stuff so they can stay relevant. Right. So, so the, so some the old of stuff, stuff has to roll off the back end. Yeah. Uh, until, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. What makes the ones that come back, come back. Now I've noticed a lot of the Hazi kits are getting boxed by somebody. Hobby 2000. Hobby 2000. And, uh, you got somebody, a third party like that. Who's, who's putting up the, who's, who's buying the, buying the, uh, buying the sprues in the bag, I guess. Or however, however they're boxing them. Either that or they're renting the molds themselves. Now, that was something that used to be done. I don't know how much it happens anymore. But back in the 80s, molds used to get rented. Well, in fact, the the the, um, the Itolari Tamiya crossover, uh, it is to this day unclear to me, does Itolari mold the molds and send the sprues to oh, I'm Tamiya? sure they do. There's no way that the the freaking tooling is crossing the ocean back and forth. I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure of that, especially with the Japanese tolerances. If you've ever looked at a Tamiya kit of a of an Itilari. But there's only so much they can do to affect that in somebody else's tooling. That's true. That's true. But so I think I, they're I, I think Itilari is sending them over there. In bulk, packaged may well kits be. With, with no boxes, and Tamiya's putting their own box on it. It may well be, but I would love to know. That'd be the typical OEM arrangement, something yeah. like that. Now, Ken, Ken does mention he's got three kits here he'd like to see something happen with. Okay. Uh, one, Two of them are Hasis, Hasegawa F111 series. Yeah, it hasn't uh, been out in a long time. And uh, there's not a whole lot of other options there. Yes, that's absolutely true. Now the Hasegawa FW one ninety series is probably not going to see much light, right? Given uh, the give, yeah, go for it. Give, given the Edward kit, no, uh, it's the seventy second scale. Yeah, the seventy second scale Edward Aquawolf one ninety is oh, okay. Frankly, the current best on the market. Um, but somebody just released a series. Oh, the the one ninety Ds, the the long nose, long right. long body one ninety Ds IBG. Right. Just release those, and those are amazing kits. I've got one. Um, uh, in fact, we were talking to with Steve Hustad, and and he has one of those. And we were talking about the the fidelity of that kit. So, yeah, I can see why something like a Hasegawa Fockwolf 190D or one night regular 190 or their 190D might those molds might not come back into production for a long time just because they've been superseded. True. And his final one's the fine molds BF 109. I don't know what the current, st- they're, they're out there. They're out there. Uh, they're, they are still out there. I don't know how the fine mold stuff, I don't know how their production runs, but there's, they are slightly unusual in some form or fashion. At the 2010 or, or 2012 Nationals, I got to talk with the guy from Hobby Link Japan, and he knows the Fine Molds people. And the Fine Molds has some sort of relationship with Hasegawa. And I don't remember, again, I've gotten old. Uh, it was 10 years ago. I don't remember the exact details of the relationship, but I think some there is some interdependence or or something between the two companies so that may affect how how often 
find molds re-releases some of their molds? All right. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. No, I'm just not sure if we answered it. We sure ran our mouths. Well, I don't, right. I don't think we know. <laughs> I don't think we know, but I would love to, again, I lo- I've got a big interest in that end, end of the hobby. So if there are folks out there who have some insight into it, reach out and let us know. Tim Holland. Now, Tim's from uh, Maryland there with the, yes. hob- the the Model Geeks guys. Yep. His uh, model room, well, it's computer in the hobby room. Yeah. His uh, model room is a 12 by 14 room in a finished basement, and the basement's all his. <laughs> Sounds like my arrangement. Yeah. And yours, for the most part. For the most part. Uh, he's got an L-shaped kitchen counter in the room and a paint booth to one side and workstations on the counters to the other side. Uh, he's got his computer workstation, uh, three modeling stations. He can slide his chair around, you know, yeah. Typical, typical jazz, right? Uh, and he's still modeling on an eight and a half by 11 inch square on the bench with all the clutter <laughs> around him. If he's anything like me and you and most modelers, but he's got his up there, uh, his computer so he can record videos, type up comments for a blog or listen to podcasts, et cetera. So yep. I, I'd mentioned before, I'd talk about this a little bit more. Um, that was the one thing when I was like putting my computer, like away from my workbench, I'm like, we have these build nights with the Canadians. <laughs> How am I going to do that? Yeah. I'm going to move everything just for one night on an odd weekend. What you need to do is get a rolly cart where you can roll it in and roll it out. <laughs> I guess so. Computer out of the hobby room. I think I'm going to say that's not, not for me. I'm just going to figure out a better way to manage my time. Yeah. Dis- a discipline rather than uh, uh, physical arrangement. You know, if you can discipline yourself, and again, I'm a lawyer, we procrastinate by, the, by our very nature. Uh, so that, that type of discipline is really hard. But I, I, one of my 2023 New Year's resolutions is getting much better at time management and not wasting time. That's it. All right. Up next, Zach Peace, Mansfield Center, Connecticut. And uh, as an aside, he says Evans should get the $6 million man reference because it's in syndication. <laughs> uh, your main topic struck a chord, especially Mike's discussion on glory hunting. That's, you know, I appreciate that. Um, he says he doesn't model to compete, but he's competitive by nature. So he has to be careful himself. Yeah. And uh, if he goes to a show, he just has to. Has to uh, keep that in check. Yep. And uh, he's had some models place at, you know, more, more shows than he hasn't. And the few he's been to, he's new to the shows, he says again. Uh, and he said, that probably doesn't help with the setting expectations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you know, he thinks he's hard on himself regarding the own quality of models, but he, 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 he finds uh, shows difficult because of his competitive side. He likes the open judging system. He finds it more palatable. But that's probably a whole other discussion. Uh, <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. That's an entirely well, different, entirely other discussion, and a good one to have, but uh, not tonight. Uh, it it does bring up what he mentions does bring up something else that I think is true. Nearly every modeler that I've personally known who goes to contests and starts entering models goes through a phase where. It really matters to them what the results really matter to them, and they start caring too much 
about the results. Now, almost everybody I know who's who's gone through that comes out the other side, where all of a sudden they they realize that it's a piece of wood or a, a round metal and nothing more than that, and really doesn't say anything too important about you or your skill or your abilities compared to other people, uh, especially since so much of judging is subjective. But I do think like most people who build and then start entering pass through a phase like that. Next is uh, Jason Campbell from Knoxville, Tennessee. He's from the Knoxville, Tennessee IPMS group down there. And uh, he's also one of the admins of the Knoxville, East Tennessee area Gundam modeling group. I assume that's a Facebook group. Cool. And he wanted to clarify one thing, uh, a minor correction. Okay. About the uh, Gundam models yep. at the at the show. I, I assume he's talking about the Knoxville show. Mm-hmm. Or this the one not, you attended? Uh, no, not that oh, one. Oh, okay. Not all the models entered in the Gundam category from their local group. He says they reached out to the Middle Tennessee group to see if some of their members want to show up, and they did. They brought up a multiple of kits in addition to the 11 kits that were entered by the Knoxville area builders. So there's already talks for the Middle Tennessee group to attend the Chattanooga show in January. Mm-hmm. And the Middle Tennessee group uh, and, the, and the folks in East Tennessee have reached out to most of the Gundam groups, well, have reached out to the Gundam groups in North Alabama and North Georgia about possibly attending as well. So uh, there's a little synergy going on there between some of these uh, Gundam groups and some of the IPMS chapters. Yep. I think there is, and I've said this before, uh, there is a lot of energy in uh, a lot of these Gundam building groups. A lot of them tend to skew a little bit younger than than modelers in the traditional categories, aircraft armor, etc. Uh that youthful energy uh I think is a useful injection into any hobby, any any IPMS club, any any modeling group that that has up to now been more focused on the more traditional subjects. And there's a lot of I can tell you from our own group, uh, the Military Modelers Club of Louisville, these folks who've come in, who that's their major subject area, really, I mean, they've got, not only can they learn from us, but they've got stuff to teach us. In in any modeling genre, there's some things that one genre is doing that can be applied to others, just like I think, right... In the last 10, 15 years, there has been a ton of crossover between armor and aircraft modeling, uh, particularly as it applies to weathering and finishing. And so I think the same thing applies with Gundams. And I am more than thrilled to see these guys and gals not only building, but starting to attend IPMS club contests and attend IPMS clubs themselves and their meetings. So they've got a lot to give. And if you're a um, member of a club and these guys show up, be welcoming to them because they, they, they have, they have stuff to contribute. Well, my last one is from the usual last one. It's a Michael Karnaka from New York city. Question of the day. That's right. If there was one accessory decal sheet or kit, 
that if it was available would greatly aid in finishing a project you've always had in mind for a while, what would it be? For him, it's the Thunder Model Morris uh, C9B Bofors gun truck that's been announced and uh, would fill a major gap in his collection if it's ever released. But uh, he wants to know what uh, what we've pined for over the years. It's still not there. That uh, would move would 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 move. Uh, let's say we'll move it to the top of the top of the build list. Okay, I ca- I can answer that question. The one for me is a privateer, a new mold privateer. The only available one's the old Matchbox one, which is not an awful kit, but it is an old Matchbox kit with all those challenges. And while I really want a privateer because there's a particular uh, encounter that I want to build a privateer and a Japanese, particular Japanese aircraft from a particular um, moment in history, uh, so that would aid me greatly in realizing that that goal. But you know, all I can do is is cross my fingers and hope that it eventually happens. In the meantime, I've got tons of recently released kits that I can build, and uh, I'm not hurting for subjects or items to build. So. Here's here's to hoping it's a, a privateer. How about you, Mike? Well, I got an idea for you. Okay. You could do it as a box diorama and you could like only <laughs> build the privateer everything uh uh north from just uh just south of the uh the waste gun windows <laughs> and use a B twenty four. Well, keep in mind the PB four Y two, the privateer that I want to do, has the large single tail. Right. But if you, so, you yeah, don't have I, to, we have to model the tail. Yes, you're. you're <laughs> well, there's still they they had waste gun blisters. There are there are more significant differences, but I could take part of the old uh, matchbox kit and build just enough of it to to be in a box diorama. But no, I'm not going to do that. I'm just <laughs> I'm just counting that since I got my Ki twenty one from ICM that God listens to my prayers and he's eventually going to have some model company releasing a, a privateer. Well, for me, it's, it's an aftermarket item that came and went and I don't remember who made it. So hopefully this gives me the opportunity to at least solve that mystery. Cause it's not even on scale mates. Really? Well, I must've come and gone quickly. Someone at one time made an aftermarket, uh, turret and launcher for the Panzerwerfer 42. You know, it's it's either on the SWS tractor or right. the Op- Opel Maltier. Right. Well, I, I want to do the Maltier version. And I've got so much other aftermarket. I, I could probably cobble together something that probably at this point is better than what this thing was. But this was a, a resin and PE and, and brass barrel thing. And I can't remember who made it. But it was available from somebody because I for like 10 seconds for 10 seconds. And I think it's the one that is on the build in Chris Morosco's old book. Yeah. Uh, there's an SWS version of, of the Panzerwerfer in there. That's got this thing. It's unpainted. The model's unpainted. Right. And it's brass barrels and all this stuff. And I'm like, man, who made that thing? Okay. Listeners, that's your challenge. I know that somebody out there knows, of the kit 
the aftermarket piece that Mike is talking about. And uh, if you're the first person to email Mike and tell him the name of the company, um, we'll get you some sort of reward. I don't know what it is, but somebody's going to identify who made that, when it was, when it was available, and uh, who knows? Maybe once he knows that, he can find it on eBay. Or it's a false memory. Oh, that's true. It could be the... Chris could have cabbaged it from some resin kit that the rest of the kit sucked and used an, uh, you know, yeah. an Intellary SWS. I don't know. So, well, if you're out there and you know the answer to that, please email Mike. We'll get you some sort of reward. Well, that's all that's come in to uh, the email address, Dave. What do you got? Uh, well, uh, Facebook Messenger has been alive and kicking. Um, and it actually has kind of a three Floyds focus. So we're, we're getting a lot of three Floyds con- content in here this time. Chris Doppler, uh, who lives up in Northwest Indiana, which of course is near where three Floyds is located in Munster. He was in his, uh, uh, local Meyer and, uh, in the beer section and they had, a display of several different of the Three Floyds uh, uh, six packs cartons, and so he just wanted us to know, sent us a picture of it, and wanted us to know that they were uh, uh, available in the Myers up there. So, which makes again makes perfect sense because it's a hop, skip, and a jump over to where the stuff is actually made. More on the Three Floyds front. Jeff Adair has accomplished something that I have not been able to accomplish. He got some of the folks from Three Floyds to actually talk to him or at least message him. I don't know if it was on Twitter or it was on uh, uh, Facebook Messenger or what, but he actually had a brief conversation with the with the folks at uh, Three Floyds and got confirmation that uh, apparently several of the folks involved are indeed modelers, which goes a long way to explaining the uh, faux Tamiya and faux Ravel boxes that they've done. On that same subject, I have actually talked to the folks at Three Floyds and gotten the name of the illustrator who has created those boxings, and I'm reaching out hoping to interact with that individual because I've got questions. So uh, we'll see if that works out. Um, David Mason up in Michigan reached out to let us know that the mid-Michigan modelers are putting on a contest on February 4th, 2023. Uh, They extended an invitation to come up and, and go to the contest and drink modeling fluid. And uh, while I'm not sure we can make it this year, we do, Mike and I, our eyes are bigger than our stomachs as far as uh, the number of contests we'd like to get to this year. And uh, he and I have been talking, we've got to sit down with the calendar and start making some some choices and also getting clearance from our better halves (laughs) who are not going to tolerate us being gone to a model contest every weekend of the year. Um, That's probably, that's probably not. That's just not happening. Uh, in fact, I'm I, I'm having a t- I'm 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 going to pay a heavy price this year to get to the nationals because uh, the model wife's birthday is August first, 
And that will be a travel day for Mike and I to get down to San Marcos. So she knows it's coming and she's already let me know there's going to be a heavy price to get that, (laughs) to be gone that particular day. But there is a price. There is a price. We've already established it. (laughs) Finally, Zahn Sullenberger, modeler who's on the big island in Hawaii. He's an IPMS USA member. And he's not affiliated with a club, but he took our or my suggestion uh, and reached out to the IPMS USA director of local chapters and regional coordinator, see if uh, he can locate a club that uh, that the guy can affiliate with and can can start attending meetings. Because again, this hobby can be solitary, but some of the best. Parts of it are interactions with fellow modelers. And again, the best parts of the national and best parts of regional and local contests. You know, I enjoy all of the modeling stuff. I enjoy all of that. But the best best part by far is the face-to-face interaction with other modelers. So if you're not going to contests, you need to do it. If you're not a member of a local chapter try and find one near you. And if you can't find one near you, maybe you can start one and uh, IPMS USA will help you locate other individual modelers in your area. If you want to talk to us, drop us a note. You can uh, do so by using Facebook messenger system. Dave usually handles those unless it's armor related, then you might pass it off to me or I might answer <laughs> if, I, if I see it first. That's right. <laughs> Especially if it's Stug or T34 related. Or you can send us an email to uh, plasticmodelmojo at gmail.com and uh, that's it for listener mail. All right. I'd like to take a moment to ask you when you're done with the listening to this episode to please go and rate us on whatever podcast app you use to listen. It really helps us. And also, if you have a modeling friend that's not listening to our podcast, please recommend us. Please assist them to get a podcast listening app downloaded on their phone so that they can listen. Uh, the recommendation of a current listener is the best way for us to continue to grow our audience. Lots of other podcasts out there, Dave, and folks can check them out after they've checked us out by going to www.modelpodcast.com. That's model podcast, plural. Uh, it's a website set up by Stuart Clark at the scale model podcast at our bequest to provide banner links to our, all the other podcasts who are choosing to participate in this uh, mutual cross promotion again that's www.modelpodcast.com if uh, you like to get into other stuff like youtube and and blogs we got plenty of those we like to follow too Uh, inch eye guy jeff groves up in indiana has got a a wonderful blog on uh, all things 72nd scale you want to check that out if you're a fan of that scale Uh, chris wallace model airplane maker great blog and a YouTube channel that's really starting to take off. So please check out Chris's uh, YouTube channel and his blog. Sprue Pie with Fretz, our friend Stephen Lee. I think he's in the D.C. area. I don't know if that's yes, right or not. But, but uh, 
lots of good and interesting content, long and short form. So please check that out as well. And uh, can't forget Jim Bates, Scale Canadian TV over on YouTube. And of course, Evan McCallum, Panzermeister 36. But uh, we'll probably probably hear from him again in the new year pretty early. I got a feeling. Absolutely. Finally, I'm not going to belabor the point. If you're not a member of your national IPMS chapter, the be that IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, etc., please join. Um, we've already mentioned previously IPMS and some of the things that they can do to assist modelers. So please join. All right, Dave. Let's have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. Come and make it in Texas, Dave. I cannot wait for this summer, man. Well, you're going to have to wait a little bit. At the time of this recording, Dave, it is 232 days away from the IPMS National Convention in San Marcos, Texas. It'll be here before you know it. It will. And uh, I think the dark times have hit our special agent, 003. I guess on his Thanksgiving travels, he dropped in on the embassy suites there in San Marcos. Yeah. Uh, now, I think from the photos I've seen online, it's highly similar to the one in uh, Omaha, maybe not quite as big. Yeah. Uh, but architecturally and decor wise, it looked uh, almost indistinguishable. But he says it looks first rate. Restaurants on site, bar on site, etc. What you would expect in a convention hotel, and uh, thinks we should enjoy it. Now he's gonna smoke out the other uh, local haunts and uh, possibly some other hotels going forward. But uh, for right now, he thinks folks staying at the convention hotel will be pleased. So. I can't imagine I, we won't be. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, at this point, give me a cardboard box. I'd be happy to. Again, it's the best four days of the year. So, you know, uh, and I have no doubt the hotel is going to be nice. That is one thing. <laughs> one of the many things when IPMS USA's eboard is looking at competing bids, uh, one of the things that they do look at very hard is the convention hotel or hotels. So, yeah, they they make an effort to make sure the hotels are up to par. (laughs) Well, good. So, Brandon, look forward to your next update. And uh, we got to get him on for uh, Winter Blitz, too. I want to give him a spot to to talk about that online, on on air. So, uh, I'll have to get in touch with Brandon. So, cool deal. Sounds great. Well, up next, Dave, is the Benchtop Halftime Report. Brought to us by Tackett Z. You can go to TackettZ.com and see what Ed's got cooking up. And uh, hopefully that uh, FlexiFile case will get a revision and uh, be available soon. I Definitely, because I want that. Might have to poke him and see what's going on. I'll, I'll do that. So check it out. TackettZ.com if you need some accessories for your workbench organization. And uh, Ed will fix you right up. All right, Dave. What is on Dave's bench? Two things. One, the Kate is... At the finish line, uh, I am matte coating it, and then the only thing left to do is to take off the canopy masking and to do the AK pencil weathering. I did a panel line wash, and I did some marbling and some other stuff, but a lot of the weathering I'm going to do, which is actually going to be fairly restrained because these aircraft were um, not well worn prior to the attack on Pearl Harbor. So 
Uh, it's going to be restrained, but the the vast majority of the weathering is going to be using these AK pencils. I really think that they're good. I really think that uh, they have a, a lot of flexibility, a lot of forgiveness uh, to the point where I I want to get good with them. And uh, the thing that I've got to battle here is that when I get to this point in the build, I don't want to mess it up. So I tend to hold back and not do and not make the efforts that I should make to, to finish the model off boldly. Uh, and I'm going to try and fight that in finishing this model. So it is possible by this weekend, I may be posting pictures of the finished model. So fingers crossed. Um, the other thing that's happening on my bench is, as you know, we've got the, well, we, I've got the Musaru build coming up that I've got to finish by the end of March. Uh, that's the Arma P51. I've been posting pictures because I do think that there is a virtue in taking a model and breaking it into sub-assemblies when you can to make, basically make a model of little models. I think that that you can be very successful by, say, if your aircraft is a radial engine aircraft, focusing on the radial engine and modeling that. What I've been doing with the Arma P-51 was the propeller is a nose cone, self-contained unit. You can model that separately from the rest of the aircraft and then just pop it on at the end. Um, I've been doing that. I've been working on that and uh, trying some new things, one of which was using pink as an undercoat before laying down yellow on the prop tips it worked out really well i'm I, you know a number of people have told us that 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 technique works i've never tried it before i was a little bit skeptical i tried it it worked exactly as advertised and now i have another another bullet in my in my holster of modeling skills and i'm going to use that again at some point in the future. I can guarantee you, in fact, probably again and again, given the frequency that you have to paint something yellow eventually. So how about your bench? I've been dabbling in lots of stuff. I'm still plucking away at these uh, tank craft tracks for the KV-85 project. So how are they assembly-wise? Are, are they... You know, compare them to, say, the old classic Fruel or, or whatever... What's the what's the old classic for all? the really old ones that the the crab claws you pinch together? Well, there's that, and then the ones with the copper wire yeah. that you make your own pins. And- the, these are better than the wire pin ones, in my opinion. Okay, because you end up with the the whole side of the pin and the and the outboard side of the pin are are detailed correctly. Okay, it's not just a wire sticking out of a hole, right? Now, some people would go around and glue little nut bolt and washer castings on the end of uh, all those to, to, if you want to do that, to, to enhance the frill tracks. And then cover it with mud. And then cover it with mud, yeah. You know, and all this aftermarket track, the, the original frills that didn't use the wires that had the pin molded in. Yeah. And you could just crimp the other link on it. Yeah. Those were the, the by far the easiest single link tracks to assemble ever. Yeah. Bar maybe some snap together ones like in 
to me is Sharby one, but they, they had a tendency to come apart on you. <laughs> At an so, inconvenient time. Usually. Yeah. Well, just, yeah, exactly. Oh, no, I like them. I'm the manner in which I got these via Scott from Tankcraft. you know, full disclosure. I didn't pay for them. Uh, I owe them some feedback and, uh, to do that publicly and, uh, it's going to be good. So I just need to get to a point where, I, where I, I've got something to show and, uh, can make my case and have it make sense. So, so uh, when you're modeling with those particular tracks, how long does it take you to do how many links? Uh, I've started, you know, I, I put together 50 over a few days, just okay. here and there. But I, I've been, since then I've been doing 10 link segments. Gotcha. And I can do the 10 link segment in about, I don't know, 20 minutes, maybe. That's not bad. It's not bad. And that's even putting a dab of super glue on the inside of the pinheads. So they sure come out, but, I, but I like them. I'm trying to think through how I'm going to paint them. Cause that's the one, if there's a disadvantage to plastic or resin tracks is, is that, uh, you can't do the burnished metal and file off the paint off the high points kind of thing. You gotta, you gotta come up with something different. So I've got to come up with a good plan to get the worn metallic look on these things. Cause I want to be metal to work with. Well, that shouldn't be too hard. I wouldn't think I got a couple ideas. I think I can use different paint formulations to make it work the way I want yeah. it to. You, another thing you might take a look at is the AK pencils. Yeah. That sounds time consuming though. It's it's actually not. Uh, I mean, from my limited experience, and admittedly, I have limited experience. I think that uh, I think that you could the burnish up a set of tracks really fairly quickly. Yeah, maybe. So, know. what else other than the tracks? Uh, I'm trying to get the, the catapult painted on the E16. Uh, last episode, I was struggling with uh, getting the shading off, particularly the top deck of the catapult, because I have. Like, if you're sitting in the cockpit of the plane, the, the left or the right side of the catapult, vertical side of the catapult's glued to the deck and the in the bottom. Mm-hmm. So I've got like a three sided box, a channel. Right. The, the the fourth side is left off, so I can put the firing mechanism in and, and rig the thing. Right. Well, I started painting it without that left side on it, and I was getting highlight paint in an area that I didn't want it. That you wanted shadow. Yeah, I wanted shadow. So now I've got to go back and I've got this thing taped up strategically so I can paint this thing and get the shadows where I want them and the highlights where I want them. And uh, I'm anxious to get the base coat on it so I can start weathering it. I had so much fun with the launch mechanism that I'm really, really excited to get rolling on the on the rest of the catapult. And I was going to say, I think that that thing just has, you know, especially between rust streaking and chipping and oil staining and all that's, it's almost an armor project yeah, from, it is. You're right. from that standpoint. It has okay. all of those potentials. Kind of like a tow truck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I guess I've also been doing some virtual modeling. I've been back on fusion 360 messing around with the Reba Botan. Yes. Yeah, so ha- how is your new hobby going? Not so much. I, um, there's some of the some of what you're saying is true, but uh, oh, I'm teasing uh, you, and you know it. I, I, I'm because of the printer I got. I'm not in the nuance of 3D printing. I just plug it in, and it works. Uh, that's the that's the hobby I didn't want. Yeah, the, the CAD and stuff I don't mind because I was doing that for crap anyway. 
I mean, I, I, I use I use CAD for the E16 dive brakes. Yeah, exactly. Well, what I was going to say is, given the fact that what you do for a living, every bit of what you do in CAD for your hobby also at least sharpens your skill for your day job. Yep. Or the and, other way around. Or Right. Exactly. It works both <laughs> ways. So, I mean, it's killing two birds with one, one stone is what I'm saying. So I got, you know, I kind of got three things going on. Yeah. Um, I mean, the printer's running right now as, as we record, I'm, I'm printing something that's, uh, one more, one more test before, uh, get a little deeper into the design work. Yeah. And I'm about out of resin that I, that came with the printer from the guy I bought it from. So I'm going to have to spend some more money here soon. So that's the way that works. Well, you got anything else on your bench or? No, that's about it. See what we get done the next two weeks, Dave. You got it. Hello, Mojovians. This is Chris from Inside the Armour Publications, and I'm here to tell you all about Models for Ukraine, Volume 2. The first volume of Models for Ukraine raised money for humanitarian aid for Ukraine by featuring only Ukrainian manufacturers made by some of the best modelers around the world. Why mess with a good formula? Volume 2 features much of the same. This time, though, all of the articles will be new and feature such great artists as Calvin Tan, Ken Abrams, Sam Dwyer, René van der Hart... Fanch Lubin, Robert Blocker and many more. All in all, 23 artists in 11 countries have donated their work for free to what we think is a fantastic modelling book that also happens to raise a lot of money for a good cause. If you'd like to purchase this fantastic book, please head on over to InsideTheArmor.com to get yours today. Also, if you'd like to know more about the model manufacturers of Ukraine, please look up Models from Ukraine podcast to hear the latest interviews with people like ResKit, Wingsy Kits, Armory and many of the other Ukrainian manufacturers. A special thank you to Mike and Dave. Raise your glass of modeling fluid and let's get back to the plastic model mojo. Always a worthy cause. Mike, uh, have you been monitoring what's been released or, or announced to be released in the last uh, 30 days or so? I have probably longer than 30 days. We haven't done this in a while. I know what, uh, what, I, what? I, I got a pretty good list and, and I tell you, unfortunately, some of it's going to have to wait till this war's over. <laughs> well, I have, I have trimmed my list down because of the fact that there were, again, I don't know if it's the, all the hobby manufacturers have gotten together and decided that they're going to break me uh, financially or what, or it's just that we live in the golden age of modeling, but uh Faves and yawns. Uh, I trimmed mine down to three, but it was tough doing that. And I could have added five or six more easily. So, <laughs> Mike, do you have a favor, yawn? Uh, well, let's get the Russian ones out of the way first. I'll do two at once because I've got several. You know, I've got that Katusha project all boxed up and ready to go. Um, yep. I've, I've got a three kits to kit bash and, and make that work. Well, now Quinta or Quinta studios has come out with the, in their 3d decal series. Yep. And, you know, they, they've got a set for the ZIS five. I know. Uh, <laughs> I, I saw that and immediately thought of you. So that's, that's interesting. And then, uh, yep. kind of based on my last completed model, my ZIS two, any tank gun, uh, there's a, 
company, another Russian company, Scale 3D. So they're, this is printed stuff. Yeah. Uh, they have three sets. One is a set of Zist 2 wheels, which is, you know, uh, Hussar makes those. And, right. And probably somebody else does too. Uh, not, not, that one's not so interesting, but they also make a set to convert the gun back to the early, you know, the, the Zist 2 was in production, then they took it out of production and they brought it back. So right. this is the kind of early war pre-war version of the gun that had the, the riveted square split trail. Yeah. And the shield shape was a little different and the gun breach was different, but uh, they make a set for that. And they also make a set. It's a little bit smaller set to do the last version of the gun, which was the very late war one that went into the post-war. So interesting stuff. I'm going to be curious what these companies kick out going forward. Now I'm not going to build another Zist two. I just thought those were really neat, especially the early version. That's, that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, what do you uh, got? Well, I'm going to start with a yawn. And it's only a yawn thanks to you. <laughs> uh, recently, a company called Beaver Corporation announced several figure sets, uh, some with equipment, some with not, uh, of Japanese World War II, um, Imperial Japanese Navy and Imperial Japanese Army figures for, you know, uh, aircraft dioramas, um, ground crew, armorers, etc. And I am telling you from the advertisement, I would have bit so hard on these. It's not funny. The only reason it's a yawn for me is that Mike took a bullet for me and he ordered a set of them and given his input on their quality, uh, I'm going to pass. But, man, if these things had been done by somebody who was doing good quality stuff, I'd be so all over it. It's not funny. Yeah, I've got the a set of uh, Imperial Japanese Navy ground crew, mm-hmm. or deck crew, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Uh, and the pilots. Now the pilots aren't too bad. It, it's not that the quality is bad. It's just the 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 execution's bad. That I mean, there's just so much more refined and better better sculpts out there. Yeah. Uh, these are almost seventy second scale crash test dummies. <laughs> I mean, they're really rudimentary. Yeah, and and that's that's the problem with all these with three D printing and all of that you got all these companies coming into the 72nd scale figure space and you're never going to know what the quality is until you, until you either see them or until a modeling buddy takes the bullet for you and orders them and determines that no, despite the advertising, it's the quality just isn't what you'd want it to be. Well, I'll tell you what I'll do. A fave and yawn together because they happen to be the same subject. Okay, now how can you have as both a fave and a yawn? This I gotta. This I gotta hear. Go this ahead. This may be a. This may be a first. Yeah, exactly. Mirage, I think out of Poland. Yes, out of Poland. In the nineties, they were putting out a lot of obscure and esoteric early war and and small army stuff and in thirty fifth scale. That you know, generally it wasn't very good. Yep. But it was the only game in town. Right. Well, 
they've kind of upped their game on the 72nd scale side of their armor stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've released a M8 75-millimeter howitzer motor carriage. You know, the... Yeah, the... The gun motor carriage, gun motor carriage on the on the uh, basically the the Stewart, right? And this kit's got I think some PE, some three D printed stuff, and it's a nice, looks like a nice tight little kit. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm curious as the overall quality of the thing. Given I'm mean, you know Mirage is going to make me hedge because I've got all the old stuff from the from the nineties. Sure, uh, but some I've seen builds of some of their like their M3 Lee. Yeah. And you know those kits aren't bad, so looks like they may be leveling up. So- and and that is the normal progression for most model companies. Uh, you know we've been spoiled by companies like Arma and Clearprop, who's who seem to have come out of the gate already fully formed. But most model companies, the old special hobby is the one that you think of, where. They start out as short run manufacturers and they get better over time. So the yawn is Tamiya's version of the same thing in 48 scale. Yeah. It's not my jam, Dave. <laughs> well, that's okay. Uh, listen, and, I, and, and I tell you that the kit they have in 35th scale, the MA, it is old. Yes, it is. And it's, it's given that they through their very first Panther kit established 135th scale. Mm-hmm. It's almost blasphemous that they did this kit in 48 scale without doing a refresh of the 35th scale kit first. <laughs> you sound a, a little personally offended by that. I, I guess I, I guess I am. So um, <laughs> I'm sure it's beautiful, but you know, wrong scale to me too soon. I, well, I I'm Okay. God forbid a 72nd scale guy stands up for 48th scale. I still think one of the best moves Tamiya ever made was to start releasing 48th scale armor because 48th scale armor makes a lot of sense. And so I, I will defend them in doing 48th scale, but I, I, I understand your, your, frustration with them (laughs) what else you got my next fave is in honor of jim bates uh there's a company called belcher bits out of canada uh i've met the manufacturer it's a nice guy uh again a cottage industry they've released the canadians did so many weird things in the 50s and 60s One of the things they did was they borrowed a U.S. uh, B-47, painted it up in Canadian markings with day-glow panels, and they strapped an engine to the tail, on the side of the tail, that I think was testing an engine for the CF-105. I'm not 100% sure Jim, Jim could educate us all about it. But Belcher Bits has actually done that conversion to release the markings and the resin to take the Hasegawa B-47 kit and modify it to this one-off Canadian test bed. And while it's maybe not my cup of tea and might even have been a yawn for me, 
given the fact that I know that Jim is excited about this and he'll, this is something he'll buy and maybe eventually build, not necessarily finish, but build. I, I'm, I, this is my fave in honor of Jim. That's generous, Dave. Thank you. I, 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 I'm feeling <laughs> generous. Well, I've got uh, one more, and it's a it's a fave. Okay, I'm, I'm a little hesitant on this one because uh, it's Mirage again, but it's thirty fifth scale. I don't know if it's Cubus or Cubus. It was a shop built armored car used by the Polish resistance in the Warsaw Uprising. Oh yes, I know exactly what you're talking about. And and they've kitted this thing in 35th scale. Now it's yes. been announced a while ago, but uh, we've we haven't done one of these in a while, so. And um, I think there was a previous kit of that actually. It's probably a resin kit. Yeah, I think somebody did a resin kit. In fact, there Okay, I'm reaching deep here. There is an article. I'm thinking it's in a previous RT it might be in a previous journal where there is a full article on that particular one-off armored car because it's famous. Uh, uh, Tom Romanowski could tell you all about it, and and it's an it's an interesting subject. Yes, it is. It's absolutely a very interesting subject. I've got a final fave, and that is our friends at Arma have released a double boxing, or at least announced a double boxing, of the Arma F4 F4 and their new P400 slash P39D Guadalcanal boxing. If you do not have these two Arma kits, both of which are fantastic, this is a chance to pick them both up. Uh, at a price that you couldn't buy the two individual kits for. Um, and again, all praise to Arma. They are doing uh, amazing things. Uh, the more I work on this Arma P51, the more amazed I am by it, the more impressed I am by it. Um, so if if you don't own the Arma F4 F4 and the P39, it's a nice chance to pick them both up on the, a little bit on the cheap. Getting the right size base for your model diorama or vignette can be difficult and time consuming. Bases by Bill has the solution with their all new custom size display bases. Offering sizes of 4 to 30 inches and any size in between, you choose the dimensions you want and you get the size you need every time. They can also be laser engraved with a unit emblem or custom text of your choice. In addition, shipping is always included within the lower 48 states. Built by modelers for modelers, Bases by Bill has bases and display cases for any type of model and for any size. Visit their website at basesbybill.com to see their new products or to get your own custom built base or display case quote. Use the code MOJO at checkout to apply a 10 listener discount to your order that code again is mojo for 10 percent off bases by bill for all your model display needs well dave we got steve hustad back for our special segment tonight yes i can't wait and uh it was a good conversation so let's not waste any time and get right into that sounds great
Well, Dave, we got our old friend from uh, Minnesota back tonight, Steve Hustad. Steve, how you doing? Is it cold up there yet? It's been snowing down here a little bit. Well, it's it's been cold on and off, but this week it looks like it's uh, kind of hovering around uh, freezing, so we're getting a forecast of some rain and snow mix later coming on. So There you go. That's always that's that's worse than just snow. That thing Mo- modeling weather. Yeah, yeah, I spent four years in Kansas City, and they got a lot of ice storms down there, and that was <laughs> that's that's tough. Well, Steve, we had you on the first time, I think, uh, as a kind of uh, a general conversation, and and then uh, we had you back again talking about figures, mm-hmm. and I think to bring this seventy uh, second or really any diorama in any scale, but primarily seventy second scale uh, diorama topic, kind of full circle. Uh, I was hoping we could talk about uh, your trees and your scenery tonight because I think uh, nothing strikes me as a lost opportunity as seeing a, a, an entry on the table that is a, a superbly executed model, be it in a diorama or just on a, a scenic base. And this sucker's just sitting on some unpainted woodland scenic ground foam or, <laughs> mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 It's a- Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Dave. I was going to say the worst thing that you see as far as that goes is any, particularly 72nd scale. For some reason, it stands out more in that scale, but it's true in any scale where the, the earth is depicted as a completely flat and level surface. Mm-hmm. And it just, that just never looks right. Right, and all the foliage is looks the same, the same height and same distributed height. the same, and or it's just laying down, or it's not painted, or yeah, it's yeah, it's it's hard. I think it's harder to make seventy second scale look good, and that's part of the challenge, and that's kind of why I like to do it. And so it's it, it all comes down to kind of scale finesse and building in in small scale kind of requires the modeler to kind of paint and recreate, kind of like an impressionist painter instead of like a realist painter. Yeah. Cause you're kind of giving, I think you're, you're just kind of trying to give impressions of, of detail where it's really too small to create some detail in some areas. So we're kind of turned into, you know, French impressionist painters, I think in a way. So. Well, I, you, you work a lot. You're like Mike, you're in, inspired by photographs and you mm-hmm. work a lot from photographs. So you're, you're not only having the challenge of, okay, I've got to make this look realistic, but you've got the challenge of I've got to make it look realistic and look like this picture, like the the groundwork in this picture, mm-hmm. which strikes me as being much more challenging. Yeah, it can be, especially if you only got one picture to go by. It's uh, sometimes, because I do mostly kind of Luftwaffe crash aircraft and usually taken with allied uh, uh, veterans photographs. But sometimes right. you luck out and you get a, a scene that's maybe photographed from several different angles. So that's kind of nice. And then you can get an idea more of the topography and which way the, the land is sloping and something you thought was one way uh, looking at it straight on on the scene you're going to model looks very different from the other angle. So then you can kind of make corrections. So but if you're doing it just from one in one photo, that um, then you just have to kind of use your imagination a lot too. Sure. And, yeah. So it's uh, think of yourself as a Van Gogh, but with both ears. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> which you, 
do you okay let's start with your base what mm-hmm. do you use i know it's very popular among the armor guys and then you, you watch night shift videos or whatever mm-hmm. the the very tight uh uh styrofoam like material yeah there's uh and i use some of that too i usually start with a, a wood plaque um, right but on top of that i'll kind of work on the topography and and I'll build up the topography and the uh, the sloped landscape with uh, styrofoam. Or um, it's actually I know what Martin Kovac typically uses. It's uh, what's called an extruded polystyrene. Start, right. And uh, being an architect, that's usually what's used in buildings, usually commercial buildings, actually, because it's a very dense um, styrofoam. But that makes it easier to carve uh, instead of like that beadboard stuff, which is more yeah. common packing material. And that doesn't cut real easily or cleanly. So I've been using um, some of that. I was actually up in my uh, the attic above my garage the other day. I was looking at, I was hearing noises up there. I was thinking we had raccoons or something. So, I'm, so I get the get the ladder out and I'm in the garage and I'm poking through the, the hole up there. And I, I hadn't been up there for since we bought the house. And I was looking around and, and I looked over and here's this pile of extruded polystyrene sitting there up in the attic space just kind of yeah just kind of stored there and i've been to home depot and they want a fair amount of money for that stuff so it is it is amazing to me how expensive the really dense the the stuff i see in my local home depot is purple yeah it's you know the different densities are different colors apparently um but yeah that stuff's expensive yeah, so I'm up there and I'm getting dirty and I'm looking or I, I signed the flashlight on this pile of, uh, you know, two feet by six feet and there's like four of them stacked up on it. So if you want some, I'll, I'll give you some. <laughs> that, that's right. Sounds like you're set though. Yeah, um, I'm set and I'm going to, I'll give away most of it, I'm sure. But, but that stuff works pretty well for bases. And what I've, uh, done before is I've used actual, um, uh, it's kind of a it's a harder styrofoam that I think flower, floral uh, arrangers use sometimes, yeah. and you can manipulate that pretty well and just glue it to the base with white glue and kind of build up your contours that way. And and then when that's done, I, I kind of usually switch to the old Chepane technique of using uh, cellulose clay, that paper mache material, right. which comes in a gray or a white. So if you're doing a winter skiing, use the whites. <laughs> just just because it's easier to paint. Now, when you're working on the base, the the styrofoam base, and you need to cut it, do you use a hot wire or do you carve it with a exacto or uh, how do you how do you shape the base if you're going to like cut part of it out to make a slope or or well, you since- know cut a ditch in it or something like that. Yeah, I usually just use an X-Acto knife because most in 70-second scale bases tend to be rather small. And I think I think the largest ones I've used, I did a JU-52 crash scene once. Right. That, had a, that was probably, oh, 16 by 12 or something. That might be like the biggest. I remember seeing that model. And that's uh, and so I'll, I'll usually uh, get the wood base and then build up the, the contours and the landscape with styrofoam using mostly extruded polystyrene now, which is a building material because it's easier to carve and easier to manipulate. And it glues with white glue. Right. And I'll kind of put that on there. And then 
uh, smear the uh, celluclase paper mache over the top, and that gets mixed up with um, just tons of white glue, just so it sticks well. But I know Martin Kovac now has that <clears throat> that uh, VMS stuff, yeah, which. I saw uh, that. What does he call it? Um, it's called VMS Smart Mud XL or something. It's yeah. <laughs> and I have I bought some of it, but I haven't tried it yet. So, but it it looks like it works sort of the same way. But uh, well, the celluclase I've not used that in forever. But you know, you had to use a lot of white glue. Yeah, it's I used as much white glue as I used water, and then you kind of mix it to the consistency of a really thick oatmeal. And I spread it on with an old baby spoon. <laughs> so, and then after Silver that, one? Uh, yeah, well, it's, yeah, no, it's, <laughs> I think it was nickel plated with a bear on it or something, <laughs> but, but, um, it's, and, and then when you get the, uh, the contours laid down, I usually build up the sides off the wood base with, um, like three sixteenths inch, uh, basswood. And you can uh, then miter the the corners and and build that up, and then you can kind of cut it down after the fact, and and then kind of build the celluclase back out to meet that and fill in the voids and and that sort of thing. Okay, so so we're at the point where you have the groundwork and you've worked the contours in. You've got the celluclase on, and you've got the contours, and you've built mm-hmm. the sides to mm-hmm. to contain that. Yep. So where do you go from there? Uh, at that point, I usually will finish the wood sides and the wood base. I'll, I'll sand it and stain it and poly it and then then mask it Okay. because going forward, I want to protect all that. So, And that's just like you do around the house with, you know, refinishing a window or something. So Sure. And, uh, but then... <clears throat> well, this, uh, then you can go back with more. I saved the celluclase too. I can kind of put it in a plastic bag, put it double bagged, and and you can reuse it for a while. So, and you can smear on some more here and there if you want to fill more voids because the stuff does shrink a little bit when it cures. And uh, if you keep it wet, then you can use it as a, a wet layer to uh, drop some gravel or sand or uh, you know kind of sprinkle things and. And a good, uh, good cheap source for that, of course, is the gutter in front of your house. You just go out <laughs> and just go out there with a, uh, a whisk broom and a dustpan, and your neighbors will wonder what you're up to. But just sweep up all that stuff in the gutter in front of your house, and it's perfect for, for use. And yeah. what I did uh, to get even stranger, it's, it's since we're all modelers anyway, yeah, is uh, sifted it into three different sizes. So I'm, you can, I'm not surprised. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you can have like three, a really fine, which of course for 70 second scale is best. And then the second one is a little coarser and a little larger pieces. And then a larger one that I find I don't use much at all. But um, so then you can control what you're, what you're sprinkling on for, for that. And now you, you put that stuff onto the groundwork. You maybe add a little cellular clay or whatever, and then you, sprinkle that on while it's wet to try and get it to bond into the to the ground the right the, gr- and you, the base you, ground yeah and you can re-wet the celluclase with a some brushed on uh, diluted white glue as well especially since if you're not working quick enough and part of it starts to dry before you're fin- finished to get into the next part that that comes in pretty handy too and then you can just use that to deposit uh, individual uh, rocks or stones or things where you want them Sure. Now, 
if you're doing a crashed aircraft diorama and, you know, you need to have marks in the ground in mm-hmm. your groundwork, do you, is this about the point where you'll start adding those? Yeah, it's really important, um, is to kind of work on everything all at once. And I usually have the model itself probably 90% done at this point. And I've got the figures about maybe 80% done and you bring them all together repeatedly over while you're still working on the base because you want them all to fit when you put it together at the end. And um, early on, if, if I'd get lazy and I'd then be surprised when something wouldn't fit, then it's kind of like, well, <laughs> duh, you know. <laughs> so, so, now, so now you just do everything all at once and you, you test fit, test fit, and, and take photos. The cell phone camera is a great tool. Yes. Um, I had I had one Battle of Britain diorama where there was 18 figures on it, and it was these uh, British um, RAF and uh, Army personnel that were they had collected this uh, 109 that had crashed, and it was being recovered and pulled away by a team of horses. Yeah, and and there was some uh, <clears throat> some RAF personnel and, and some Army personnel pushing the, or pretending to push the 109 like they were pushing it and but there was 18 figures and there was a group of like six or seven of them that were all interacting and touching each other so that group especially you have to um, make sure they all work together so looking at the photograph and looking and modifying each of the figures and kind of building them up against each other and touching each other so that that they they're configured and touching and interacting exactly the way you want to. And when you get it to that point, you can use your cell phone camera and take a photograph of that from a couple angles so that when you come back later, uh, you remember exactly this guy's hand was on this guy's shoulder and this guy's other hand was, you know, pushing the back of the elevator and the plane and that kind of thing. So that's really useful for, um, uh, planning and interacting, uh, the dioramas. But as far as like crashed in ruts and things, you can carve, I usually carve those out, um, ahead of time. Or sometimes if I make a mistake, I'll go back and I'll cut through the cellular clay, the dried cellular clay, and just kind of rework an area. And I'm, don't be afraid to do that because it's so easy to build it up again if you make sure. mistakes. Yeah, very forgiving. You know, and that is something, by the way, that I have noticed just generally. If you take photographs of your model as you're building it and then look at the photographs, I always see something that I don't see when I look directly at the model. Right. And I don't know why that works. I don't know what it is about it, but there is something about looking at a photograph of the model. You'll see a a defect, a hair, a, a, a... Something that when you looked at the model directly while you were working on it, you just don't see it. Red spinner paint. Yeah, well, <laughs> I knew that was there. That was not. But that but that is a valid point, yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I can relate to this, making it all work together and, and all come together at once, as you're saying, Steve, because... I'm working on this this KV85 tank, and it's going to be crossing a a railroad roadbed. Mm-hmm. So I have to articulate the suspension. So, oh yeah, elements of the terrain, elements of the model, and the railroad tracks all have to be kind of done at the same time, and, and it all has to come together. 
at least at a, at a point to pose the suspension before I fix it permanently and then go from there. So yeah, that's, it took me a while to learn that. I think I used to finish the model and then make the base fit. So they tended to all be flat because mm-hmm. I didn't pose the susp- suspension on my, on my tanks or anything. So yeah. Uh, when you start articulating, point. yeah, you start articulating things more and you just have to make sure it's just, it's more to save you pain later when you bring it all together. And yeah, <laughs> because otherwise you end up, you know, cutting and carving late in the game and you don't want to do that. And, and it just makes it so much easier. And then it's, it's so much more satisfying to model that way too. And cause you know, it'll work. And you're not just kind of holding your breath until the end. <laughs> um, there's something kind of related to that that I see in your dioramas is your models look like they have weight. A lot of times on a diorama, you will look at it and the model appears to be resting on the ground, but it doesn't look like it has weight to it it looks like mm. it's you know made of of tissue paper or whatever and it looks like it's just sitting on top of sitting on the, the high gr- the groundwork right yeah yeah that's a good point and especially, especially with a crashed aircraft yeah when and you have an aircraft sitting on its belly on the ground after it's like you know scraped across the the steep or whatever and yeah, it's it's you have to carve the the model into the base. Like um, I did a, it was a crash scene. It was an HE 111 in a winter scene that it had crashed in the yeah. uh, out in the middle of Russia somewhere. It's just flat and desolate and white and and uh, um, but the the cool the uh, the radiators on the underside of the engines were so deep <clears throat> they would really carve a rut on both yeah. sides when it came in, and so I had to carve those out and then. Actually, had to get the drill out and actually drill down on the base where the plane would sit finally, so the radiators would sit in into the wood, and then you could um, carve out a place for the fuselage. So when you get back and look at it, I think when I finally finished that, when I put the put the HE-111 in the rut that I'd carved for the fuselage and in the the holes that I'd made for the the engine radiators, and then I took the wet cilia clay I still had bagged and you can kind of work that up and around it. And this is before I did the snow color and sure. all the rest of it around that. But, but yeah, you're right. It's, it needs to, um, especially a crash scene or a scene like an aircraft that needs to sit in, um, in or so it doesn't look like it's on. And that is a big mistake that a lot of, a lot of um, people do make. So, but it does make a big difference to the eye when you look at it. Yep. I agree. Uh, so you're talking about, you know, you do bits of this all kind of simultaneously rather than mm-hmm. get all the groundwork done, then get the figures done, get the model done, get the foliage done. So as you're working on the, and again, you work from pictures a lot. Mm-hmm. As you're working on the groundwork, you're also where does the foliage and by foliage i'm talking everything from uh you know bushes to high reeds or, mm-hmm. or weeds uh mm-hmm. up to trees and all of that where in the process do you start fitting that in 
Um, right about the point after you get uh, the gravel and maybe the uh, the plane itself in place. And, and uh, again, this is where the photographs help out because you're not guessing where things should go. You're looking and seeing where things should go, and, and that actually makes it easier. And you can see that the grass, uh, for instance, is missing over here, but it's really thick over there, and, and it's it's got some bare spots here and there, so that should be you know, open and gravel or whatever. And, um, but I work it up usually from the smaller, smaller height foliage up to the, the tallest tree in that order. Well, before we go too far down that, that mm-hmm. direction, once you've got the celluloid like you want it and the, and, and the, the, the textures like you mm-hmm. want them, the sand and gravel, et cetera. Uh, when do you start adding color to that? And uh, maybe in that's in concert with the foliage and the in the ground cover. Um, or, yeah, or, the color comes in. Uh, usually, I'll put the grass on first um, without doing any painting yet on the groundwork. I'll do the the cellulose clay, and I'll do any bare earth. I'll do any gravel or sand, and I'll do the grass. <clears throat> and then um, again, I kind of revert back to the old Shep Payne technique of. Uh, uh, using mostly enamels on that, but I'm kind of switching over to the Martin Kovac technique now, um, where he airbrushes uh, a lot of the base colors, and he even goes over it with like Mr. Surface or 1200 mahogany or something. Um, but you can saturate the uh, the cellulose clay with uh, mineral spirits, which it takes in really well, and then you can use uh, enamel paints to kind of wash it in and kind of wet mix it here and there and just to get lay down the base colors and that includes the grass and before i get to the grass or continue much further the grass um uh use i use static grass and of course for 70 second scale i use the the two millimeter stuff and i've got some four millimeter stuff and some taller stuff so i actually bought one of those flock those electronic flocking machines Mm -hmm. that are on ebay they're only like 25 bucks but they work amazingly well and and they can put off quite a shock too if you touch it wrong. Right. That's right. <laughs> I was That's about to right ask. Here. They'll give you a forty dollars shock. Oh man! <laughs> for just a couple little double A batteries, you'd be surprised what that thing can generate. <laughs> but, well, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about grass. What you use? So you're you're still. I don't want to say old scale, old school, but the static, the classic static grass. And if for 72nd scale, the two millimeter and then maybe four millimeter for higher tufts of grass or something yep. like that. Well, just to lay down the basics, yeah. Okay. And then switch over. I've been starting to use a lot more of like the AK, the tufts and things. Yes. And you can buy that in a lot of different sizes too. And most of it's, almost everything's made for 135th scale because that's probably you know, 95% of dioramas you see. But yeah. if, if you tend to get really particular about what you see and buy, you can find some that are adaptable to 72nd scale. Like that's just the smaller ones. Or sometimes you can buy bigger tufts and just pull them apart with tweezers. Mm-hmm. And you can use like segments of them, <clears throat> dip them a little bit of white glue and put them where you want. And so you can use the bigger stuff if it looks the color is what you want and maybe it's got little flowers on it or something. You can pull it apart with tweezers and make it smaller, and that helps. And then because what you're really looking for in small scale is get that scale finesse, and that's something that's difficult to achieve in small scale. But when you do achieve it, 
um, it does look good. And it's, it's, and I think that's why you see a lot of dioramas that maybe, um, they kind of ignore the scale effect. It's, it's, we'll use this product cause it's available and we'll use this over here cause it's easy to use. And, but, um, if you pay attention to the scale of it, you can start uh, building things up. And this is where the photos come in handy again, too, because you can see where the grass is tall and you can see where it's short. You can see where it's missing. And so anyway, I get the, like, the grass down and the gravel, and then I put the base colors down with uh, usually enamels and thinner. But then I'll switch to the airbrush, and I've been switching to use um, acrylics now with the airbrush. And you can uh, kind of build it up... Um, with uh, darker colors to lighter on the grass and, and you can uh, do that in riverbeds. And, but uh, the, the third thing I use on the groundwork usually is oil paints and you can uh, use gently dry brush on oil paints. You can get such a finer effect with oil paints and dry mm -hmm. brushing. And it's, it, it gives a really, a really fine effect. But so anyway, that's, that brings us up to maybe the grass areas. So, and uh, shrubs, um, again, AK has a lot of shrubs. And uh, um, I, I sometimes, I'll go to Michael's and I'll buy the, uh, the dry foliage. It's meant for like, um, uh, like dry flower displays and things. Right. You, can, you can buy those and find something that, that has some more intricate uh, branching to it. And it doesn't really matter if it looks out of scale then because you can take that larger stuff and you can cut branches off and you can super glue them on so that you can create something smaller and more intricate with super glue. Mm -hmm. So, and if you have super glue and a little bit of accelerator, you can, the process is actually pretty quick for building up small shrubs. And then you can use the AK um, stuff and pull it apart and put that in the shrubs and stuff. But so you can kind of build up shrubbery that way. And I've also used, um, a product that I'd abandoned a long time ago, and that was kind of that ground foam stuff. Mm -hmm. You can use a little bit of that, but you don't want to use too much because that really looks like what it is. If you, <laughs> if you, yeah, I was, I was I was about to mention that it's well one because you mentioned these tufts and things. There's a model railroad centric company called Scenic Express. Yeah, that sells a lot of that stuff, and uh, I've used that before, but. uh I think thinking about this this uh, discussion before we actually got started, you know, in, in the days ahead, I, I was kind of wondering: HO scale model railroading and, and seventy second scale scale modeling aren't that far apart, really, right? And right, uh, I think that's technically what one eighty seventh or one eighty seventh, yeah. And it's the model railroading community is kind of they've got their, their set of stuff. They use a lot of, a lot of times, a lot of it is ground foam. Mm -hmm. And, but I think, I think when you're not having to deal with something that large, typically, and need to do that much work over such a vast area yeah. over, over, a, over a limited amount of time that with a 72nd scale diorama, even, you know, a four engine bomber crash is, it's not small. But it's not a model railroad either, right? No, no. <laughs> and that's that's why they use what they do is because it's easy and fast and yeah. And but. and it's interesting because um, uh, there's a model ra railroader who was actually modeled in N scale. His name was Lance Minheim, and uh, he he did some amazing things in N scale, which is 144th scale, I think. Hmm. And 
but he didn't use a lot of that stuff. He, he kind of did more what you're doing and it really paid huge dividends in his scenery. Of course that's, I'm on a, I'm on a tangent now, but um, no ground foam. I think that's really interesting. You even brought that up, but uh, yeah, it's, you can use it sparingly here and there. Like um, sometimes I'll, I'll clump it up with some white glue and I'll stick it underneath shrubs um, just here and there to just very small pieces. And it kind of looks like just, um, can kind of build up like small mini shrubs under the shrubs and <clears throat> because groundwork the foliage it's always kind of small to large and most people forget the medium in between stuff and that's what really kind of infills the eye when you look at it and it makes it look more natural well i think the ground foam is, is so uniform in size and shape and color. yeah and again you can pull that apart and manipulate it and most people just use it as is so so you've got your shrubs in, now you're going to actual trees. Mm -hmm. How do you build your trees? What do you, I mean, I've seen people with the wire armature trees. I've seen people using, you know, uh, some organic item, you know, be it a root or a, mm -hmm. a, a dry foliage from, you know, flower ranging or whatever. Oh. How How do you make most of your trees, particularly if you're going to model something that you can see in a photograph. So the tree can be kind of distinctive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's well, again, like now you can almost buy trees from AK. They're all very expensive, but uh, I like to make my own. And you mentioned roots. Um, if you have like a gnarled oak tree or just a, a, a shell shattered uh, tree, uh, sometimes a root works well for that. And I've I've been up in the woods and back of my house after a rain pulling up things and you know, my <laughs> my neighbors are probably watching <laughs> and filing <laughs> getting concerned. But but uh, usually what I use for trees is again the, the Michaels dry foliage. You can go and or at Hobby Lobby I think has it too, and you can find uh, things that look like they're trees and except I mean the branching of them, but maybe they're too big and. And you can take those apart and you can build off of those uh, with super glue. Super glue works surprisingly well <clears throat> to a natural material like that. And with a little accelerator, it goes quick. And then um, there was a, a diorama I finished that had some tall trees on it, the, uh, the called Blown Up and Souvenired. It was that um, J88 that was the one uh, that's the got its apart. Right, back broken. Yeah. And. That had some tall trees in the background, which made kind of a nice uh, background for it. But, right. Um, so I built the uh, uh, the trees up that way using the dry floral uh, uh, things, and then <clears throat> and then I raided my wife's kitchen for some <laughs> some. Uh, <clears throat> let's see what was that stuff? That was. Oh, the uh, uh, oregano leaves and basil yes. and parsley, parsley flakes and <laughs> all that stuff, plus all the stuff I'd cut off the foliage that I'd kind of ground up. And so I mixed that, put it in a, a cup, and then I had another cup with some diluted white glue. And then you can kind of dip the branches in the diluted white glue and then dip them into the mixture of leaves you've created. And you can go back and forth and then let it dry and then come back the next day and do it again. And again and again, you build it up that way, and you get a surprisingly good-looking tree. And uh, um, you don't have actual tree shapes, but 
or tree leaf shapes because that that's only made for like 35th scale right. but but you get things again you're an impressionist painter and you're so you're giving the impression of the the smaller leaves and that's the way to do it of course if you look at it really closely you'll see that you know each individual um supposed leaf you know probably doesn't look much like a leaf if you really right. get down close with a, a magnifier and look at it but but from um you know just even a few inches away it looks pretty convincing so that's the way I build up my trees anyway. Now, have you tried pine trees at all? And yes. <clears throat> because yeah, those to me seem super ch- – and you wouldn't think that they would be. But for some reason, the combination of the shapes of them and then the fact that they have the needle leaves make them really, really hard to simulate in either 35th or 72nd scale. Right. And I've got a, a technique I use for those and, um, and I've done some pine trees. I just, I just finished uh, about six months ago, a 72nd scale armor diorama that was, um, in the Ardennes complaint, uh, campaign. And it was, <clears throat> it was a Panther tank kind of shoved down a ditch and there's like th- three or four GIs standing on top of it, kind of looking in the hatch, but it's kind of a winter scene, but, all around it are these pine trees. So what I did there is um, out in my wife's garden, she's got uh, some long grasses that kind of lose all their um, fluffiness in the fall. So I go out and pluck those and you can, so I get these pieces that are maybe, oh, six inches long, but, and they've got, um, it's kind of got a uh, pretty straight, but it's got these little, um, these little, tiny maybe eighth inch long branches that come off of them after you get all the the fuzzies off of them Mm -hmm. and then i take those and use those the larger ones for the trunk and then i'll take a a product i found um from a company called mini nature have you heard of them yes i have i've got some some tufts from them actually yeah they make all kinds of stuff but they also make um long and short uh evergreen boughs um except it's it's kind of a it almost looks like expanded metal the way they've it's it's this kind of brown and or dark green and it's kind of this it doesn't look anything like it in the box but you I take that and I cut them apart um, like maybe a half inch long by an eighth inch wide piece or sixteenth inch wide piece and then piece by piece I'll build it up from the bottom larger to smaller with glue which is white glue and it it takes or you can use super glue too. Um, and you kind of build it up and it looks kind of rough at first, but then when it's all dry, you can take the scissors and you can kind of trim it into more of a conical shape, but it's got a, a really good kind of fuzzy texture to it that even by a couple inches away, it looks like evergreen boughs. Hmm. And, um, you can use that for uh, even uh, evergreen boughs and camouflage in a tank, or in this case, it was just surrounding scenery on the scene, but that works pretty good. And that company, Mini Nature, it's a German company. Um, you can find them on eBay. And, uh, yeah, Mike, they do make uh, tufts uh, also and all kinds of other uh, grasses. I ordered it from Germany. and um, Well, the tufts, the tufts I got from Scenic Express ended up being Mini Nature. Okay. Oh, that's who made them. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So they probably sell them to... So there's a domestic supplier if you need one. (laughs) Okay. That's good to know. But they're a a really good company. Like AK has really branched out and they've got a lot of that stuff. 
we were joking the other day that it's it's going to be another six months and we're going to see AK tube glue. <laughs> Probably. Well, did and you co- see? Uh, uh, speaking of groundwork and everything, uh, just today AK announced the release of there are these bottles of what would you call them, Mike? Flocking, or yeah. Uh, I don't like know what the stuff is. It's probably ground, probably ground foam. <laughs> it's probably ground up ground foam. Who knows? But they are they are releasing it as uh, moss for thirty fifth scale dioramas. Really? Which I suspect probably would have a use in seventy second scale dioramas for foliage on trees. Well, here's another tip. Um, go back to Michael's, and they have bagged moss there. Yeah. Which is, uh, it's. I bought a bag. It should. It probably last like five lifetimes. But it's got. <laughs> it's got just tons of this little ferns and little things in it that are just tiny. Mm-hmm. And it's. It's. Um. I think it's sold just to decorate around the bases of flowers. So, but I got a, a bag of this stuff that's probably eight inches by ten inches by two inches thick and. I used it to um, put some scale foliage uh, camouflage on a yog tiger I did too, a 72nd scale. And because that's especially difficult to get that on the, the vehicle and make it look right. to scale. But they have these parts of these moss. It looks just perfectly like a fern branch in, in scale. It's just great. And you can use that stuff underneath um, uh, shrubbery too. and, and uh, Or even photo etch stuff. Uh, you found, um, I think... Uh, um, you can find, I think even, uh, Edward has some, that's mostly 35th scale, but right. I found some ferns by, um, I think it was Edward, uh, in 35th scale. I bought it, but I used only the smaller ones in a, uh, ME262, uh, diorama where it was kind of tucked into the woods, the woods. and there's some yeah. British soldiers looking at or posing in front of it. And that's, but that, that works. So you can find some photo etch stuff, uh, um, that can kind of duplicate for some foliage. Again, it's mostly 35th scale, but if you buy, they usually have a variety of sizes. So you're, if you have a 35th scale friend, maybe you buy two of them. <laughs> you take the small stuff, give them the big stuff. <laughs> and, there you go. Yeah. That's why everybody needs to have an armor, 35th scale armor modeler as a friend. <laughs> that's that's right. how, that's how I acquired Mike. Um, <laughs> what, <laughs> Steve, what's the, as far as foliage goes? What's the toughest thing in retrospect that you've done foliage-wise? What was the hardest to pull off and make look right? Probably those pine trees. Okay. Yeah, I think probably the 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 actual deciduous trees were surprisingly straightforward, and I they came out you know, better than I expected and easier than I expected. The pine trees were a little tougher. Um, I did another diorama once that had, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the Bauckham BA349 yeah. Natter. Oh, yeah. I did a diorama where there was uh, three of those that were on carts that were abandoned right. in a field. Yeah. And each of those were covered with these kind of uh, evergreen boughs. And uh, I, had, I had good photos from around, and that was... Yeah, it was a well-shot scene. I mean, because that, yes. that was photographed from... It's almost like they walked completely around them to take the photographs. Yeah, and actually, you can do a search on YouTube. There's an actual um, a video. video 
of that yeah. whole scene. So I would, I, for for angles I didn't have, I'd go and watch that video on YouTube, and then I'd stop it and take a screenshot, <laughs> just <laughs> so you can get kind of uh, you can get the angles you're missing with regular photographs that way. But that had some some evergreen uh, foliage on that was put on there as kind of camouflage. But that was in 70 second scale. That was difficult and. Um, so evergreen boughs, I think, or evergreen trees are the most difficult. But again, for those, I again use that that mini nature um, product that's made for uh, building up evergreen trees. They give you they give you some they they just intend you to wrap it around this wire armature they give you and just call it good. But I threw away the wire armature and I I started picking apart. The, the pieces they gave you and kind of build it up piece by piece. So, um, but that, and then just trim it with the scissors. And then after it's done, you can paint it with the airbrush and, and some oil paints and get more subtlety in it that way. And that's, I did the same thing with deciduous trees. When you paint those, um, what I did, I would, I'd spray them black from the bottom mm-hmm. and then <clears throat> kind of a black green from the side. And then, lighter greens um, from the top and almost a straight yellow from the top down. And, and uh, that actually, it's an easy way to create some, some pretty good shadow effects and highlight effects pretty easily and quickly. Is there a type of foliage that you haven't done that you'd like to attempt something like a palm tree or, you know, uh, just something, something that you see as a challenge? Um, I haven't done any palm trees yet. Uh, that could be a, ta- a challenge. I know there are some photo etch um, palm fronds out there. Right. And I know also, as I think I've mentioned before, I'm a real sucker for modeling how-to books. Yes, you and me both. <laughs> yeah, I, I buy and I've learned a lot from them too. But I, um, so I, I, I buy a lot of those things and. And uh, those have some uh, good ideas. But one idea in there for palm fronds I thought was good is uh, paper. And mm-hmm. paper can look surprisingly realistic if uh, – and you just airbrush it and you can cut it with scissors and you can twist it and bend it and airbrush it and glue it. And, and you get you know two or three layers and sticking out this way and that way. And before you know it, you've got something that looks far more realistic than that photo etch thing that's also far more expensive. So – yeah, so I think um, that can be created that way. And I've done some regular um, ferns that way, but I imagine the same technique would work for palm trees. Sure. Now, when you go to the Nationals, or any contest, but, uh, you know, the Nationals you're going to see the most, you're walking down the air cur- the the small scale dioramas, either small scale armor dioramas, small scale aircraft dioramas. You're walking down, you're looking at those. When you look at those, what do you see that immediately takes you out of the diorama? What what flaws, mistakes? What is it when you're going down the aisle? You look and you immediately go, that doesn't look right. I'd say most of it probably is just the same as looking at any other. It's usually composition might be bad or or there's wide areas of open space that just um, aren't doing anything or the figures are just not interacting with each other. But 
with 72nd scale, it is usually uh, scale finesse, um, usually using overscale uh, aftermarket materials that are meant for bigger scales in 72nd. Or just um, when we do larger uh, dioramas, I think sometimes a lot of modelers kind of run out of steam and they just kind of finish it up just to get it done and <laughs> it looks like it. Thanks. I feel seen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, guilty as so, charged. Yeah, that's, and that's, guilty and that, as charged. And that's why it's always best to keep the base as absolutely small as you can. Yeah, and that and that actually helps the focus for the the viewer too, and and it reduces the amount of work you got to put into it, and and the work you do put into it then is a lot more highly focused. So you know, you you keep referencing back to Shep Payne. That was one of Shep Payne's initial lessons. You know, he had the diorama book, and he talked about composition. Mm -hmm. And one of the lessons he was talking about was keeping the bases small to keep the focus on what was on the diorama, rather than having an overly large base, right. which which detracts from that focus. Yeah, and the other thing, of course, going back to their previous podcast is. Some usually the figures aren't done very well. They're not painted very well. They're not posed very well, and that that kind of stands out right away too. But um, I have, have one kind of rule of thumb with, uh, or actually several, but kind of the, the major rule of thumb I have for modeling in seventy second scale, whether it's a diorama or the Ki forty five Nick I'm working on right now or whatever. It's if you have a choice, or there's always choices you make while you're modeling when you're scratch building or you're coming up with a piece that you want to substitute for a kit piece or something, or, or you have to replace something you've lost in the carpet monster or whatever. No, and, that never happens. <laughs> no, or some piece that's, you know, pinged off into the netherworld from your tweezers from, and uh, is <clears throat> whenever you're looking to select a replacement or select a piece to put on your 72nd scale modeler, you're often faced with something, a choice between something that's a little thinner or a little thicker than it should be, or a little um, bigger or a little smaller than it would be. And mm -hmm. I guess my rule of thumb is always go with the smaller or thinner selection, even if it looks too thin or too small, because it'll always look better on the model than something that's a little bit too big or a little bit too thick. Gotcha. And I think 72nd scale, <clears throat> that's that's often what gives away the scale is um, this, the, this lack of scale finesse. And you need to really kind of pay attention to that. So your pitot tube needs to be in scale. And, and if you have a little handhold on the canopy pole, um, maybe make that out of, uh, you know, the electrical wire you've stripped out of a <laughs> out of some Small insulated motor. wiring yeah. instead of, um, you know, the oversized piece from the photo etch fret or something so gotcha now so, yeah. you you mentioned our previous discussion and uh of figures have you noticed have you gone on scale mates and looked because mike and i have been here ever since we recorded that that podcast with you mike and i have been talking pretty regularly about all of the new 72nd scale figures and 72nd scale figure companies mm -hmm. that are announcing product. A lot of it's 3D print. Um, 
But it's just like all of a sudden there are no end to these companies. And I'm wondering if you've, because I know Mike, uh, uh, Mike purchased some just to see from one particular company and theirs weren't very good. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered if you had been dipping your toes into any of these just to see if there's something that that's, uh, you know, compatible with your needs. Um, let's see, you say you found those on scalemates. Uh, yeah, scalemates. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of my habits is about once a week or once every two weeks, I go to scalemates, I click on what's new, and then I, I select 72nd scale, and I just look for everything new that's been announced in 72nd scale mm. for the last two weeks or whatever. I do that um, on Hannett's. <laughs> yeah, well, I use I used to I used to use Hannett's for that, but Scalemates is a little bit broader. But okay. yeah, the same thing with Hannett's. But <clears throat> Hannett's Hannett's doesn't carry every product line, so they don't have all of the announcements. But yeah, they're they're just if you look on Scalemates, there's got to be a dozen new figure companies in the last two months yeah i've seen some of them but i haven't tried any of them yet um i think at the omaha nationals there were some that i saw that were used and they looked pretty good and uh in the 72nd scale diorama areas there's a one or two that i noticed had obviously used them and they did look pretty good um I haven't gotten any myself yet, but if I did, I'd probably just buy them for parts. I'd probably cut them up and use their arms and well, legs and sure. separate. But, sure. But yeah, I th- there's probably no reason why uh, uh, we couldn't, especially since uh, uh, Prizer seems to be uh, not importing here anymore. So. Right. Well, and that's one of the reasons I mentioned it, is looking for an alternate quality a product that you find to be equivalent to the prizer figures Mm -hmm. but is now becoming available and maybe already pre-made as the particular figures you want as opposed to converting a prizer figure yeah of course if you're matching it to a pose in a photograph you're probably stuck with having to modify them but (laughs) yeah but otherwise yeah you have to do something anyway yeah, Mike, did you ever get around to doing that? Um, you said you were going to do a 70-second armor diorama, you said once. <laughs> oh, I'll I'll do another one. It'll be another, like, nostalgia. Well, no, we talked about one that I, I want to do a little more serious, didn't we? Yeah, yes. you sent me a picture of it. Yeah, so. that was a photograph of a, gosh, what was it? It's a Tiger One crawling by a disabled or knocked out KV-1. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I, I filled a... I filled a basket on eBay with all the stuff I would need to build that, but I'd never pulled the trigger on it yet. But uh, <laughs> I, it's it's still uh, still on the list. My, Mike okay. has the same problem I do. That's uh, I, need, I need four uh, of me to get all the yes, stuff. Yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or one of me who has focus and doesn't procrastinate. You know, uh, at the Cincinnati show, Barry Numeric and myself and two or three other guys were standing there talking and somebody posited that building faster and completing models was a better way to get better than building slowly and carefully. And Um, 
I think just building continuously is maybe a better way. I mean, I think what they're trying to say, and it's, it's kind of what I kind of what I've always said is the more you build, the better you get and the faster you get. Yes. And And I think that's absolutely true. So, and I think the way to do that is just to be continuously build, just set us, try and get an hour a day in at least, or, um, just so you're always working on something and always advancing a project and, and the more you do, and then you'll find yourself getting faster and because the experience builds up and then you know how to do this and that where you didn't before and that goes quicker and then you're on to the next step. And yeah, so it's, yeah, the more you do, the better you get and the faster you get. Yeah, I do. I do think that that, that the more I've thought about it and, and like I said, it was a, an interesting discussion that I keep coming back to that I do think the more you build and particularly the more you do the basic stuff, mm-hmm. the better you get at mm-hmm. it and the quicker you get at it. And once you've gotten better and quicker, then everything else starts to get better and quicker. Yep. And, and Barry himself is an excellent example of that. Cause he, uh, he is quite prolific and quite <laughs> quite good, and that's a good example of that that uh, that very theory is is he he builds a lot he he works at it a lot and he turns out a lot and it's all super high quality. So yes, and Barry uh, uh, sent Mike and I an email with because I had been in that same conversation in Cincinnati. We were talking about unbuilt kits. Mm-hmm. And you know Barry focuses on ME 109s, and I'm like, yep. we were just standing there joking around. And I said, Barry, how many unbuilt 72nd scale 109 kits do you have? And <laughs> his answer was well over 250. <laughs> I think and it- I, I was incredulous. Well, I asked him the same question at, at, at the Omaha Nationals. We were in the contest room, and I, we were talking about the new uh, the Edward one right. line series that are coming out in 72nd yeah. scale. And I, I said, I'm sure you're aware of that. And he says, oh, yeah. And I said, well, just out of curiosity, I says, uh, you, you've you been building mostly the fine, fine molds 109s. I said, how many of those do you have? And without even missing a beat, he says, 117. <laughs> so just <laughs> the and fine molds ones. <laughs> just, I, I was somewhat incredulous when he told me all that at Cincinnati. So uh, he emailed Mike and I photographs of his of his stash just to prove he was not pulling my leg. And yeah, oh, yeah. it's incredible. It's, it is absolutely <clears throat> unbelievable. Yeah, so he, no matter how fast he builds, he's going to need to build faster. Yeah. Oh, he's such a good modeler too. <laughs> he is. He really is. I mean, it just. Well, he's the one that got me into riveting, and I've been doing that now. And um, the, the two 190 D9s I just finished, I didn't have to rivet. One was the new IBG kit. Right. Which, And the other one was the AZ models, 190D, which is, has rivets on it, too. So I used the riveter to kind of touch up after it was all together. But um, but the, the ones before that, the HE-115 and the AR-196 and... And the uh, the two the the Hasegawa Tojo and the Hasegawa Nick I was uh, did the the riveting on those and I can thank Barry for getting me into that. So, <laughs> but you guys are always saying, "What are you doing to get better?" Right? So, well, that's 
uh, I eventually want to try that technique simply mm-hmm. because of the fact that Barry makes it look so a easy and good. And of course, mm-hmm. anything that looks both easy and good is never easy. Yep. And he turns them out uh, pretty quickly, and he and does. I think he, yeah, and that's because he's gotten so good and fast at it. And of course, yes. he builds one or nine, so they're all, and mostly the fine molds ones. So he's yes. he's got those down to a science. But boy, they're beautiful models. Yes, they are absolutely. And I do think there is probably a certain speed advantage to building the same kit mm-hmm. over or same family of kits over yeah. and over again. Is you know once you've built it for the fifth time you know where all of the potential pitfalls are. Right. And that, that's why I, to speed things up, I always build two at a time. Like yeah. right now, the Nick and the Tojo, or before the HE-115 and the 196, because I like to pick ones that have kind of, use some of the similar colors, so I don't have to clean out the airbrush as much. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've mentioned some projects there. What's uh, what's going to come off the finish line as, as dioramas? Um, well, I just did a, uh, uh, the one, the AR-196, that's one I've titled Lost at Sea, and it's uh, one where it's it's kind of breaking up and ditching in the sea, and there's a um, a pilot on the wing, and there's a pilot in a life raft, or a, a observer in the life raft, and they're trying to come together before the thing sinks. So I did finish that, and I do want to build the... Uh, the uh, the do two seventeen m that uh, Dave uh, turned me on to. <laughs> the, I knew the, that was so up your alley when I yep. saw that it wasn't funny. And there's there's a lot of good photos of that too. Well, so. it, it, it's a great story, and yeah. and yeah, you're right. There's a ton of photographs. It's not like just one photo of that thing. And again, there's a video on of, on YouTube of that after right. it crashed in the garden. So I could. I could pause that and take some screenshots for angles I didn't have before. So I'm ready to do it. And I, and you can do a bit with that one. You can do a building or two. Uh, yeah. Well, it crashed in somebody's garden. So at right. least to get the garden and maybe a, a garden a, shed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, we look but, forward to uh, all those. When, when are we going to see you again? What's, what's your show schedule looking like? Uh, I don't know. We just went to the Chicago show. Hope you guys can make that next year. Uh-huh. I want to get back to that. I really miss it. That was a lot of fun. And um, uh, I think uh, I'm going to, uh, Mark and I are going to try and make the Roscoe Turner show in April. Oh, that would be fantastic. Um, we're going to, that was a fun show to go to. So It is a good, good show. We went there to see you guys, but now we're going to go for the show. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, th- this time we'll we'll rearrange our schedule so that we can go back to the hotel room and, uh, uh, you know. Have a happy hour. Yeah, or get a little earlier and go out to dinner or something. But yeah, and and so after that, I think uh, we're planning on San Marcos, um, and uh, we've got our own uh, NordicCon coming up in uh, September, <clears throat> September thirtieth, and that's um, we're going to do it on that date, and that's our own local show we have here, and we're going to do something a little different this year. We're going to change our NordicCon to. Um, a contest and an exhibition. So we're going to do uh, display and contest um, together on the tables, just with different entry sheets. Sure. So well, trying to go. That's to the show. that's that's. And is there a reason you all decided to do that? Um, <clears throat> just we want to try and grow the show more. Uh-huh. We usually average around four hundred models, but we think we can get it up to, you know, five or even six hundred if we kind of. 
uh, appeal. There's a lot of people that, that, that like to build, but they don't like to enter contests. Gotcha. And there's some in our club like that. And I know they like to display their work, but they don't like the, the contest atmosphere. So, um, now we do kind of an open, the aircraft judging is more of an open gold, silver, bronze, uh, right. System. It's not a one, two, three system, but even so, um, this year we're going to have, uh, do the display and the exhibition. We're going to mix them together. They'll go in the categories with the contest models, but they'll be just for display only, but they'll have to, uh, pay the rate as if they're entering the contest as well. Sure. So, um, and I'm going to do, uh, a seminar on 72nd scale aircraft dioramas and display my whole collection of aircraft dioramas all right so. we're go we're, we're we're going up that's the week after <laughs> our regional my uh, september <laughs> september 30th september we're 30th we're gonna well oh, actually man. i've got no excuse i could go out to the airport and get on an airplane and fly for free so i yeah. have no excuse not to get there oh that'd be great to have you guys here that'd be a lot of fun yeah, I will have. I'll have to. We, Mike, we need to sit down with that calendar. It's I starting, know we do, man. It's starting to fill you, up. Maybe we can get you the Chicago show in, in uh, mid October too, or something. That one's that's a lot easier than Minnesota. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, it's really. That's actually from Louisville. That's not a bad drive. We'll d- we'll just get Mike a buddy pass, right? Right. Well, not only, but Mike for Chicago can adopt me. Yeah. Hey, here you go. Hey, Mike for Chicago. You realize. That if we go to the Chicago show, we drive right by three Floyds. Well, yeah, we could. I mean, <laughs> quite literally, right by it. Well, Steve, thank you for all the insight, and thanks for joining us again. And then we'll have to think up another topic to get you well, back we, on here. Well, we're going to come back for water. He's got to do at least one more, which is water and snow and ice. Yeah, so, we could do water, yeah, water, snow, and ice, and uh, – yeah, that's that's kind of a whole other animal by itself, and yeah, well, especially with you having uh, doing that one ninety six, and of course Mike has an interest in in that particular aircraft, so uh, you know maybe we can give him some ideas or go go me to finish. There you go, one or the other. <laughs> oh, and, and Potato- one other thing. Yeah. As, as we get as we get older, I was going to mention when you get you know we're working in smaller scales and even thirty fifth scale. That's you know that's not like you're doing one twenty fourth. It's um, of course as we get older, we need more light. Yeah. But one thing I one thing I I, I did is um, when I had my last eye exam, you go and talk to the ophthalmologist, and I told him what my hobby was, and we, when he was done laughing, <laughs> I, I got him to I said now take. Take the prescription that you have for my the bifocal lens on my regular glasses and make that in a full lens prescription by itself and increase the magnification by a factor of three. <laughs> so I had him write me up that, and I had a special pair of glasses made just for modeling, which really does make a difference. <laughs> no, but what it, what it does is it helps you avoid mistakes that make you, and you when you see it clearly and sharply and up close, so I just, you know, I had the the reading prescription and said, increase the magnification by like three or four. And, and that, then that works great. I'm, so. I'm about due for an eye exam. I may have to have that talk with my, yeah, just, it doesn't cost anything. I can write out the separate prescription and go down to Pearl vision and, you know, for an, like, with a coupon in hand from the Sunday paper <laughs> and you, for a hundred bucks, you can get a pair of modeling glasses that are perfect for you. That's, that's not a bad idea. I'll have to yeah. look into that. Yeah. So, 
Well, you start planning on talking about water and snow and ice, and uh, we'll have you back on before too long. That sounds good. Sounds All good. right. Uh, Mike, it's always a pleasure to talk with Steve. Um, you know, again, he's been one of the folks that I've admired his work for a long, long time. And uh, one of the great things about this uh, podcast is that's enabled me to connect with him and learn from him and interact with him. So I always enjoy these interviews and I can't wait for the next one. We've already got the next one planned and uh, uh, I can't wait for it. Uh, I assume that you're about at the end of your modeling fluid. I am. And so tell me about bullet tenure. Well, we've, I've featured it before on here. It's got more, a little more flavor than the standard orange label bullet. It's a little hotter. Um, but the reason I got it again was cause I, I've gone through a couple of bottles of that Russell's, Russell's. reserve tenure yep. over the last couple months. And, uh, I think I like it better to be honest. Really? So I think you, I've, I think wait I've, a minute. Bullet I've, has been unseated. Bullet ten years been unseated. Okay, I don't so, know about standard bullet. I was gonna say next thing you're gonna have to do is go back to standard bullet and give us a comparison between standard bullet and Russell ten year. Now, understanding that Russell ten year is a little more expensive price point wise, but it's not as expensive as the bullet ten year, which is interesting. Now you're gonna have to give us a comparison between the Russell ten year and the bullet regular. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear if Russell can unseat bullet. Cause you've been a bullet guy for a long time. Well, how's the wine? It's good. Again, I'm not a wine guy generally, uh, unless you're eating certain very rich foods, uh, particularly French foods. There are certain uh, very rich French foods for which wine is almost the required thing to have. I'm generally more of a steak and bourbon guy or a beer and pizza or beer and wings <laughs> guy. But I will give it to, I will give uh, Mr. Vitkus's due with the appropriate meal, a, a red wine makes perfect sense. And if you're going to drink a red wine, this Coppola 2019 Cabernet is is very, very good. It's very drinkable. I enjoyed it. It got me through the episode. I've got uh, nothing bad to say about it. Well, there you go, folks. Two recommendations. We are at the end of the episode, and uh, it's time for shout-outs. What shout-outs do you have? Well, I would like to first shout-out our Patreon and PayPal contributors. We've got a few new ones since last time. Yep. Marion Morris, Paul DeOrval, and uh, Adam Andrew Armstrong have, have chosen to uh, contribute financially to our little effort here. And uh, if folks would like to follow their lead, you can do so by going to www.patreon.com slash plastic model mojo. There you can sign up for a recurring contribution. If you want to kick us a little every month, you can do it at Patreon. They'll help help you. Patreon will help you get that down the road. Uh, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution or 
manage your own recurring contribution, you can go to www.plasticmodelmojo.com. In the upper right-hand corner of the screen, you'll see a heart icon that goes to our our PayPal link, and you can you can do whatever you want to do there. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's helped us move over to this new platform that we're finally finally getting some polish on and learning how to use and enjoying that. And uh, guys, you make it all possible for us and uh, keep us motivated. So thank you very much. Again, I also want to thank all of you guys that uh, that contribute. I also want to shout out uh, Steve Hustad for indulging us. Uh, I've been a fan of his forever. Uh, the only reason I got to interact with him other than saying a hello at a national is the fact that uh, uh, we started doing these podcasts. And if nothing else, uh, the the ability to interact with him and the ability to learn from what he does uh, he doesn't seem to think it's as special as it is and as unique as it is as it is, but it is. And I really want to shout out Steve and thank him for indulging me in in letting us hit, basically pick his brain again and again. Well, I've got another one. I've got one too. So go ahead. Uh, Mr. Adam Mann. And uh, Adam is a YouTuber and a good friend of Evan McCallum's. Adam is a, a modeler. Does does primarily German armor on YouTube. We can get, we can put a link in the show notes. And okay. uh, Adam is also kind of a collector and connoisseur of uh, tank track links and and fittings. So he's got a collection of German track links and tool clasps and stuff like that. Tow hooks, all the small accoutrements you might find on the fenders of like a Panzer three or four or something like that. Right. Yeah. And. Uh, He's also really heavy into 3D printing. He's he's helped uh, Tankcraft on a little bit and some of the other manufacturers with some CAD work. And Adam's agreed to be a guest on the show. So at some point in the coming year, we're going to get Adam on and talk about all this stuff. Because uh, I, I can't wait to listen to you two geek out so. over, over German track lengths and tool clamps. <laughs> well, what's your final one, Dave? Um, my final one is our friend... Tom Balky Romanowski, who sent me basically a lighted radiotype on air sign for us to take to shows so that when we're recording, we can turn it on and people will know that we're actually recording so they won't walk up to us and talk to us while we're in the middle of a recording session. <laughs> um, Tom is one of the nicest human beings on the planet. Uh, he is an excellent modeler. I don't think he realizes how good a modeler he is. Uh, Tom was actually born in Poland uh, pre the fall of the wall, pre the fall of the Soviet Union. So he grew up, uh, he emigrated to the United States when he was 17, uh, uh, did a stint in the U.S. Army, Um and and Tom has a really uh, clear insight into life in the United States, and I he's one of the one of the nicer guys you'll ever meet modeling. Um, I wish he would go to more contests because I would love to see him interact with more people. And 
it was really kind of him to to send this thing, and uh, I can guarantee you it will go with us to every contest where we're recording from now into the future. That's some cool table bling, so thanks. It is, man, table bling. So, Mike, uh, looks like we're at the end of the episode. We are, Dave, and as we always say, so many kids, so little time, Dave. Take it easy, man. We're going to be recording on Christmas at the time.